0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Our scripture reading uh, this evening is again going to be Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 16. We're actually going to be looking at a number of passages uh, this evening, Uh, but we're going to begin in this uh, paragraph, which is now uh, familiar uh, to you. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 16. But before we hear the reading of God's Word, let us go to Him and ask for the grace that we need to receive it as it is, as the very Word of God. Pray with me. Father God, we come before You humbly asking that by Your Spirit, You would open our hearts to receive Your Word with faith and with love and with meekness, that we might Believe it, that we might rest in it, that we might bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory and the good of your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning at verse 7. This is the very Word of God. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. As we've seen the past few Sundays, this paragraph sets before us the proper place of sacrifice in the Christian life. First, the author makes it clear that it is Jesus, once for all sacrifice of Himself upon the cross, that is the only basis for our reconciliation to God. It is by His blood and by His blood alone that we have been redeemed, that we have the forgiveness of sins, that we have been reconciled to our Heavenly Father. It is by Christ's blood alone. And therefore, we must rest upon His sacrifice alone for our salvation. But at the same time, we must also bring our lives and offer them to God as living sacrifices. As Paul says in Romans chapter 12, we must offer to God the the fruit of our lips. We must give Him glory and we must do good works doing good for our neighbor as a sacrifice of praise to our King. This is the proper place of sacrifice in the Christian life. We trust Christ's sacrifice alone for our salvation, but we bring the sacrifice of our lives to God as an expression of the new relationship that we have with Him through and in Christ. So last week, we asked the question of, of what does it look like to offer to God the sacrifice of our good works. What does that that look like generally? And then we ask specifically, what does that look like in the area of race relations in the United States today? Given the injustice that we see, given the the injustice that has boiled over in the last few weeks, but the, the injustice that has been there, present, even when it's below the surface for years, for decades, and for centuries. In an area where there is such injustice, what does it look like for us as the people of God to do good? And we, we thought of several things that are, are specific examples of how we might do good in this area, beginning simply with, with listening to those who are other, those who are different than us, the, the people of color who we, who we might not always have a relationship with, to, to listen to them, not to respond, Not to explain to them our view, but to hear their experience. And then to weep with them because of the injustice that they have experienced and endured for so long. But it's not only weeping with them, it's also examining ourselves that we might identify the the, the racial prejudices and, and biases and assumptions that, that are at work in our own hearts and that, that shape the way we live in the world, that we might own them and confess them and repent of them, turning from them back to God with the full purpose of new obedience. But even there, we, we cannot stop. We can't stop simply with confessing our own sin, but we must begin to speak up against sin and for justice in our Community, Whether that community be the, the small circle of our family, or whether it be our city, whether it be our, our nation, we must learn to leverage our voice, the voice that we have as the dominant culture, to speak up for justice. And in, in all of this, we must begin to seek new relationships. We must begin to broaden our circles, to to establish friendships, to do the hard work of cultivating new friendships. And all of this must be seasoned with the gospel, for it is the gospel which gives hope in the midst of such darkness. And really, that's the point that I want us to explore further this evening. I want us to, to think further about how the gospel is the fuel that motivates us to engage in this sort of work, in the, the work of doing good, and the work of seeking God's kingdom, and the work of, of trying to cultivate and, and, and spread his shalom here and now. How is it that the gospel actually motivates us to do that hard work? I readily understand how the hope of the gospel strengthens people to endure in the present. The the hope that we look forward to in the future strengthens us to endure because we can say with Paul that the, the trials and the tribulations of this life are not worth comparing with the eternal weight of glory. Yes, we are able to endure injustice now because we know something better is coming. But how is it that the gospel motivates us to engage with injustice now And seek to put it right. It's not always been clear to me. It's not always been clear to me how the gospel motivates us to engage. I understand how it strengthens us to endure, but how does it motivate us to engage? And to answer that question, we we need to first understand what the hope of the gospel is, We we need to see that clearly. And hopefully by seeing it clearly, we will then begin to unfold how it actually motivates us to engage in the presence. So let's let's begin with with defining the hope of the gospel. What is this hope of the gospel that we are talking about? Well, let's take a moment to, to formulate an answer in your own mind. If someone asked you, what is the hope of the gospel, how would you answer this is one of those gotcha questions professors like to give to, to students. You know? Write out your answer on a piece of paper so I can show you how wrong it is. But, but maybe you'll get it right. If we've been doing our job, maybe most of you will get it right. But what is the hope of the gospel? How do you think about it? I would suggest to you that in, in mo- the modern evangelical church, most people who would answer that question would begin with the forgiveness of sins. The good news of the gospel, the hope that the gospel gives us, is that Jesus has died upon the cross so that we can be forgiven for our sins. He took our punishment upon himself so that we do not have to drink the cup of God's wrath. He drank it for us. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, Paul says in Colossians. So we celebrate what what Paul says later in Romans when he says, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or as he says in in Romans chapter 5, Having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. Or as that very famous verse in, in the Gospel of John says, All those who believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. These are the, the definitions of hope that we tend to focus on, that we tend to, to cling to. And I want you to hear me say this thing that they are gloriously true. In Christ, we do have the forgiveness of our sins. In Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who who believe in Him. In Christ, we do have peace with God. We who were once enemies have been reconciled. We who were far off have been brought near. In Him, we now have the hope of eternal life. Death is a defeated enemy. These are gloriously true. They do not tell the whole story. They do not tell the, the full hope of the gospel. I want to suggest to you that Scripture gives us a much fuller vision of the hope that is ours in Christ. And So I want us to look at a number of passages together. I said we're going to kind of be bouncing around. And If you don't like to bounce around in your Bible, that's fine. You can just listen. But if you, if you want to, we're going to look at a number of passages beginning with Mark chapter 1. So flip with me to Mark chapter 1 if you want to sort of tail along or, like I said, you can uh, just listen. But again, I think most of these passages will be familiar. But it's important for us to sort of hear them again. And so in Mark chapter 1, the, the uh, opening chapter, Mark just dives right into Jesus' public ministry, beginning with the, the ministry of, of John the Baptist. And then we read in, uh, halfway through the first chapter in verse 14, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. All right? So he comes proclaiming the gospel. And what is that gospel? You, you know it. You, you've heard this verse so many times. What does how does Jesus summarize the gospel? He says, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled suggests to us, as we'll see in just a moment, that, that Jesus is coming as the fulfillment of something that has been long promised, something that people have been waiting for. It's finally time. The time is at hand. What you've been waiting for has finally arrived. And what is it that you have been waiting for? The kingdom of God. The hope of the gospel cannot be fully comprehended without an understanding of what it means to speak about the kingdom of God. The hope of the gospel is that the kingdom is going to be established on earth even as it is now in heaven. And we get at least a small glimpse of of what that kingdom is going to look like in Luke chapter 4. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Again, this is Luke's account of the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. But Luke doesn't give us just a a summary of what Jesus was preaching. He gives us a specific instance when, when Jesus preached in his own hometown synagogue. Jesus comes into his own hometown uh, synagogue, and we we read that he is given the scroll. He's the reader for the day, and he he reads from the prophet Isaiah. He unrolls the scroll, we're told, beginning in verse 17. And uh, he finds the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus then hands the scroll back to the attendant, and he says to those who are gathered, this scripture is now fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the one the prophet was talking about. In me. These promises are going to be fulfilled. Good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed. This is the year of the Lord's favor. And as we see, he's he's actually quoting, again, from the Old Testament. This is what was This is is what the Messiah was promised to do when God said that He was going to send a Redeemer. It was never just so His people could be forgiven for their sins. The forgiveness of sins is is necessary because God cannot allow sinners into His kingdom. Think of the Psalms. Who can ascend the hill? The Lord, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. God will not allow defilement into His kingdom. Kingdom. His, his kingdom is a kingdom of purity and of, and of holiness. And so our sin problem has to be dealt with. But our sin problem is dealt with as a means to an end. The end is that we would dwell again with God in His kingdom. A kingdom of righteousness and of peace. Again, think of the familiar passages. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Again, a passage that is just so familiar, a passage that we we hear every Christmas, but, but hear it in a new light this evening. Again, you, you know how this passage starts. Uh, uh, Isaiah 9, verse 2, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Light is finally dawning, and it's dawning in the birth of a child, verse 6. So to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his The hope of the gospel is a new government. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. A government that is equivalent to peace. A government that establishes God's shalom. Shalom. A government that is ruled by David's greater son, notice, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it. The, the kingdom of David fulfilled. The kingdom of David consummated. That, that kingdom that David himself could never fully attain because of his own sins, it will one day be realized. And it will be a kingdom of righteousness and of justice that lasts forevermore. And then we are told the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is what God is doing. We we see it again if you'll flip over to Isaiah chapter 11. Again for familiar verses But here is the the work of of the anointed one filled with the Spirit. And we have this strange vision uh, beginning in verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie da- down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze and the young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains. Obviously, there's a a lot of imagery going on there, but the the viciousness of nature, red and tooth and claw, it will be undone. The violence that that is the, the hallmark of creation, this side of Adam's rebellion, it will be undone. There will be peace. There will be justice. There will be... Harmony. God's shalom will rule. And Isaiah comes back to this image near the end of, of his book. Uh, the passage that Jesus quoted in, in Nazareth was actually from, Psalm, or, or from Isaiah 61, but he, he does it again in uh, Isaiah 65. Speaking of a new heavens and a new earth, he says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former thing shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be gladness. And he ends with this, Amazing vision. The same vision we saw earlier. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. It's a a vision of God's kingdom come. And we need to understand that this is our hope. This is where the story is going. We, we see it in the book of Revelation at the very end. Revelation chapter 21, this, this vision is said to be fulfilled. The vision that Isaiah foretold, the vision that, that Jesus said was, was beginning to be fulfilled in His presence, will be finally fulfilled in full, fully consummated at the end when the new Jerusalem comes down to heaven. You see, the trajectory of of eternity is not us escaping this earth to go to heaven, but heaven, heaven coming to earth to be established as the city of God. A city of perfect righteousness and peace. This is the hope of the gospel. The restoration of what was lost in Adam's rebellion. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and He he planted a garden and He gave man dominion over that garden and He tasked him to to extend the borders of that garden to the ends of the earth, to subdue the earth, to take dominion over it, not to dominate it, not to abuse it, but to subdue it to God's good purposes. To, To bring out its grandeur and its glory for the good of all men. That was mankind's task, to to be God's representatives on earth, making culture, good culture, righteous culture, establishing the the kingdom of God on earth. That's what Adam forfeited. That's the the job that that he surrendered when he rebelled against his king. And all his work after that moment was subjected to an infuriating futility And we are still uh, reaping the the benefits or the, the harm of that choice, even now, but not forever. God will not allow sin and rebellion to win, but one day He is going to put right all that Adam's rebellion put wrong one of the reasons that I I love that Christmas carol, Joy to the World, because it proclaims that the day is coming when His blessings will flow far as the curse is found. The hope of the Gospel is not simply that we might be forgiven for our sins. The hope of the Gospel is is that in Christ we will be restored to the life for which we were created in the kingdom of God. An embodied life, a, a culture-making life, a life marked by, by purity and by peace and by righteousness and by justice. This is is the hope of the Gospel. This is where we will spend eternity. This is what Jesus has accomplished. We we saw it last week in our confession that there is that, that individual personal benefit of Christ's death upon the cross, that we are forgiven for our sins. But our forgiveness serves a cosmic purpose. It qualifies us for an inheritance in the Kingdom. And that kingdom is coming because God is the one who will establish it on earth as it is in heaven. And so with this hope clearly in mind, I want to ask the question, how does this hope motivate us to engage the injustice and the unrighteousness that we we see in the present. I know not all of you grew up in the PCA. Not all of you grew up in in churches that sort of proclaimed this, this cosmic vision of the gospel hope. I've heard it all my life. And I've always heard the people who proclaim this gospel vision suggest that it's because we have this gospel vision that we are motivated to engage in seeking first the kingdom now, building the kingdom, manifesting the kingdom, whatever word you want to use, we can debate that later. But but that kingdom work of of righteousness and peace, I've always heard that because we know that the kingdom is coming, that we know that God is going to make all things new, because we know that He's not going to abandon His creation, that that He loves His material world, therefore, we are motivated to engage in the present. And I have to be honest, that's not always resonated with my heart. That's not always made sense to me. I understand that that those who think that God is going to rescue us out of this world, that they sometimes see the the work of social justice or the the work of pursuing God's kingdom, uh, the work of trying to build uh, God's shalom or establish His righteousness. They, They see that as something like you know, uh, uh, rearranging the chairs on the deck of a sinking ship. You've, you've heard the analogy, I'm sure. The Titanic's going down. This creation is doomed. God's going to rescue us off of it. Why bother rearranging the chairs as the ship is going down? I understand how, how that thinking can lead to, to that mentality. But how does focusing on the, on the renewal of all things save us from that how does it set us free from that how does it actually motivate us to engage because here's the way my thinking has worked I've always wondered well if God's gonna make all things new alright that's nice I, I like the vision of a kingdom if God's gonna make all things new if I'm gonna live forever in a in an embodied state in a renewed creation I like that but if what I do here and now is going to fall woefully short of God's kingdom, if we are never going to establish God's kingdom in anything like fullness here and now, and if at the end God's going to bring it all the way from, from whatever you know, pathetic little point we've reached all the way to glory in one instant, then what's the point of killing ourselves to get from two to three on the scale when he's going to have to cover all the way to a hundred at the end? I don't know about you but that that's the way my brain has always worked that's the way that I've always wondered I I wonder this about sanctification sometimes too All right, if I'm gonna struggle against sin and I'm only gonna make it just some pathetic little progress and then God's gonna finish the job at the end what's the point (laughs) why am I working so hard here and now to to make progress why am I working so hard here now my on my personal sanctification why am I working so hard here and now to to establish justice and to establish peace if, if we're going to make but pathetic progress and God's going to finish the job at the end. That's a, that's a question that I have, I have wrestled with. And the way that I have found an answer to that question is in seeing more clearly the essential goodness of the kingdom. See, I want to suggest to you that if, if you are wondering why bother Trying to pursue holiness, personal holiness here and now, if God's just going to finish the job at the end, well, that's because you don't see the essential goodness of holiness. You don't see that, that your flourishing, your happiness, your well-being is bound up with being conformed to the image of Christ. You don't see that that is where satisfaction is going to be. You're, you're still at the, other, uh, at the beginning of that song, seeking satisfaction in the things of this world and sort of uh, moaning a little bit that you're having to give those things up to, to be conformed to the image of, of Christ. You don't see the essential goodness of holiness. It is better to be generous than it is to be stingy. It is better to be just than it is to be manipulative. It is better to tell the truth than it is to lie. It is better to give than it is to receive. Holiness is better. It is sweeter. It is more fulfilling. It is more satisfying. God sets you free that you might enjoy the wonders of conformity to the image of Christ. Being conformed more and more to the glory of Christ is not a begrudging thing. It is part of the blessing. And exactly the same thing has to be said about the pursuit of justice in our society. If you believe that the best place to live is in God's kingdom, under His rule, then you will want to live there now as much as possible. If you wonder whether it's worth it to pursue justice, even if you're only going to make paltry progress, then you are not yet seeing clearly the essential goodness of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is better. God's kingdom is the very definition of heaven, come to earth. God's kingdom is where you were created to live. It is Eden. It is paradise. And we want as much of that as we can get here and now. We want it in our homes. We want homes that are marked by God's shalom. And so we seek to establish justice in our homes. We want friendships and relationships that are are marked by God's justice and righteousness. And so therefore we seek the kingdom in our friendships. So far as it depends on us, we seek righteousness and, and justice in the workplace. Now, we live in a fallen world. Like I said, we're we're not going to make progress. We're we're, we're not going to make all the progress that we need to make. Our progress will be small. But we want to live in righteousness and peace as much as possible here and now. Because we have tasted the goodness of the kingdom of God. And so if you are struggling to understand how the gospel motivates you to engage in the pursuit of, of social justice and of, and of righteousness and of, and of peace, if you're struggling how the gospel motivates you to those ends, then let me challenge you that you have not yet seen clearly the essential goodness of God's kingdom. Because once you've seen the essential goodness of God's kingdom, you cannot but want to live there as much as possible here and That's how the Gospel motivates us. And so if you do not see the essential goodness of the kingdom, then then it's questionable whether you see the essential goodness of the king and whether you see that it's good that he rules over you. And if you don't see that it's good that he rules over you, then you are dangerously aligned with the nations in Psalm 2 that shake their fist in God's face and say, we will not be ruled by your anointed. The day is coming when God's anointed will rule. He is already enthroned. And He is in the process of subjecting all things to Himself. And there's coming a day when He will return in glory to establish His kingdom in full. And all those who acknowledge Him will receive an inheritance in that kingdom. But those who shake their fist in His face and say, "'We will not be ruled by you.' For them, the day of His coming will be a day of darkness and not light, a day of judgment and not salvation." It'll be a dark day. And so we need, we need to ask ourselves, am I with the nations? Saying that I don't want to be ruled by you? Saying that I'd rather wait as long as possible to get to your kingdom? Or do we long for the day when his kingdom will be here in full? Have we seen its goodness? Have we tasted its sweetness? That's the question. I know people sometimes question, is is social justice really a gospel concern? I understand the question. I've asked it myself. The answer is yes. Because social justice is the manifestation of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And if he is our king, we want to live under his rule as much as possible here and Now, no, we will never succeed in bringing God's kingdom in full. But how we hunger and thirst for His righteousness. You see, modern evangelicals, we we tend to interpret that as individual righteousness, as, as individual sanctification, and that is certainly a component. But to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to hunger and thirst for the day when His righteousness will be established on earth as it is in heaven. And the hope of the Gospel is that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. That day is coming. And all those who hope in Him have been qualified for an inheritance in that kingdom And because God has promised us that kingdom, and because He gives us grace to experience something of that kingdom here and now, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel. We thank You for the hope of the kingdom. Father, may we never reduce the Gospel to merely the forgiveness of sins, but may we see that it is by the forgiveness of sins that we have been qualified for an inheritance in the coming Kingdom of Your Son. And may we long for that day. And may we even now seek the Kingdom in the present. Father, may we acknowledge Jesus as our King now and forevermore. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.